The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. What we do now is we go and dive into the Bible together to learn from God. We believe that God, the infinite, almighty creator of the universe, who doesn't have a body and his infinite spirit, has communicated to his creation humanity through his prophets through the ages, and by his grace has written that down in scripture and preserved that for us. And so we literally, when we study scripture, we believe we are hearing the very words of God, and his Holy Spirit is the one who helps communicate his truth to us to help us understand it. And so today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3. We have been going through the first three chapters of Genesis. We're actually nearing the finish line, believe it or not. If you weren't here last week, we began the section in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And up to this point, uh, just by way of summary, we looked at chapter 1 of Genesis, the first chapter in the Bible where God created all things in six literal days. And that's actually how days started. Why is a day 24 hours long? Well, it started in Genesis 1. And when God created everything out of nothing, amazing, miracle, it was perfect at the time. It was flawless. It was the way God wanted it. It was without sin. And as a result, also without death. So just a perfect, pristine world. That's Genesis 1. And then Genesis chapter 2, God zoomed in on day six of creation and showed us in detail how he created the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, who were real people. And every single one of us in here came through the loins of Adam and Eve, our first parents. And also shows us how marriage began as God created marriage and defined it. And that's how chapter two of Genesis ends. And by the end of chapter two, everything is still perfect. The first two human beings are flawless. They are without sin. They're married and they get along 24 hours a day. Woohoo! Yeah, I heard that. Uh-oh, then something bad happened. Then unfortunately, we had to go to chapter 3. And we did. And so then in chapter 3, uh, we are introduced to the first sin in history, the first sin in humanity. By the way, this is true history. This is not fiction. This is not mythology. This is not allegory. This is not etiology. Wait, what? Did I say etiology? How do you spell it? What does that mean? Anyway, that's a big fancy word they use when they don't want to say mythology. They use etiology. That's just mythology, that it's not true history. But no, this is true history. We already established that, that Jesus and the apostles told us very clearly this is true history. This is how it began. This is exactly what happened this is where we came from so it started out good and perfect and then it got all messed up and that's chapter three we are introduced to the first sin we talked about that already how god gave one negative command to adam and eve first to adam and said don't eat from that tree you can eat from all the trees but don't eat from that one the tree of knowledge and good and evil and we saw how a snake an animal a real animal that god had created started talking to Eve and tempted her to disobey God. And she caved. And she ate. She gave to Adam. He also ate and plunged humanity into sin, the fall, the curse. And it's been that way ever since. So the first sin, Adam is responsible. Eve was a part of it. The snake was involved, and inside that snake, we reveal later from Scripture, we see later from Scripture, that Satan, who was once an angel, created being of God, 
who also sinned through pride, became evil, was cursed by God, and then he's an invisible angel, and that snake somehow was able, I mean, Satan was able to manipulate that snake, maybe even possess that snake, and so Satan was literally inside that snake. So we saw that that's what's going on in Genesis chapter 3. God is angry. He hates sin. He must punish sin. He's a perfect God. He's a holy God. He is a righteous God. And so we transition now after the sin. Adam and Eve are running from a holy God. That's what sinners do. They are guilty and they run from a holy God. And they can't cover their own sin. They can't atone for their own sin. They can't do anything to appease a holy God in light of their sins that condemn them to death. God knows that. So he confronts Adam and Eve, the sinners. That's what we saw And now God is actually going to give consequences for their sin. Consequences to all four parties involved. And it's called the curse. So that's what we began looking at last week. That's verses 14 through 19. Is the curse from God for all parties involved because of their involvement in sin. We saw last week how God cursed the snake, the literal animal. Literally. Got punished. And so we learned about snakes last week. That they used to have legs. And God cursed the snake. Then we began also looking at how God cursed Satan who was inside of the snake. Now, Moses wrote Genesis chapter 3 in 1400 B.C. And he's writing it to about 2 million Israelites who were probably in the wilderness or the desert. They were getting out of slavery from Egypt. Now, when Moses is writing this for the first time, Genesis, and he writes Genesis 3, 14 through 19, a lot of the Israelites don't really know that Satan here is involved in verse 13 or verse 15. How do we know that Satan is being addressed in verse 15? Well, that's revealed to us in the New Testament. So we are privileged to get this new information beginning with Jesus himself. In John chapter 8, reveals for the first time that behind the scenes of this actual physical snake was actually a greater serpent, a spiritual serpent. It was Satan himself. And so Satan is the one being cursed in Genesis 3.15. We're going to look a little more detail at Genesis 3.15 this week because it was just kind of a cursory reference we went to last week. And Genesis 3.15 is just too important to just pass over it. As a matter of fact, I'd say Genesis 3.15 is one of the most significant verses in the Bible, and that's not even an exaggeration on my part. And we're going to show you, hopefully, why. And so that's what we're looking at today is Genesis 3.15. And then after today, we're going to get back and finish uh, the curse on the woman in verse 16. And then the curse on Adam and the rest of humanity and earth, verses 17 through 19. These curses that God gave all four of these entities affect us today, every single one of us. Did anything bad go on in your life last week? Well, it started here. And really, it's a result of the curse of a holy God. Not blaming God, but this is where it all started. Adam and Eve plunged us into a fallen, cursed world. So that's why it is so practical. I said earlier, after we sang the the song, Fairest Lord Jesus, that we're going to learn about Jesus in our sermon today. Well, I thought we were in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus isn't in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Yeah, he is. I suggested that in an earlier sermon, that every time you see the word God, the capital G, think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is in Genesis. He's in the first verse of Genesis. Elohim, the generic name of the triune God, that's Jesus. And then 
The name Yahweh of God is introduced in Genesis chapter 2, and that's even more specifically a reference to Jesus before he was born of Mary. Jesus exists before he was born of Mary. He exists as part of the triune God of the universe and even the creator and judge. And then we're even going to get more. This is an explicit reference to Jesus in Genesis 3.15. So we don't have to wait till we get to the Gospels to start preaching and learning about Jesus. As a matter of fact, my sermon today, the whole thing is about Jesus. But it's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is very, very important and foundational. I remember when I was in college at a Christian school my freshman year and my sophomore year in Santa Barbara, the Old Testament professor who taught Old Testament survey bent over backwards to tell us that as we study the Old Testament, we were not allowed to refer to the New Testament ever. And then when he got to Genesis 3.15, someone asked him, wait, is the seed there of the woman a reference to Jesus? And he said, absolutely not. Don't think Jesus, Messiah, Christ at all when you read Genesis 3.15. You're reading into the Bible if you do that. And not only was that his position, the chairman of the Old Testament department bent over backwards to say the same thing. So we're going to take a different position and say that, no, Genesis 3.15 is really an explicit reference to Jesus. Now, Moses, when he wrote this, didn't know Jesus by name. Jesus' name had not been revealed. And Moses did, probably didn't know that uh, Genesis 3.15 also referred primarily to Satan. He's a, he's a prophet of God, and he's writing down what God told him to write down. So this morning I'm going to propose in the second part of God's curse, first he curses the animal, the snake in verse 14. Now he transitions and he's going to curse Satan in Genesis 3.15. That's what we're looking at today, the curse upon Satan. The title of the sermon, though, as we're looking at Genesis 3.15 is Jesus, seed of the woman. Because the two main characters involved, I mean, Eve is there. But really, the main character's point of emphasis in Genesis 3.15 is Satan and Jesus, who is yet to come, or the Messiah. And one way you can look at this, the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3.16 on to Revelation chapter 22, is really a commentary and more revelation about the reality of Genesis 3.15 and how it unfolds. It really is. So let's go ahead and look at this verse and this curse on Satan. Starting at verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, the literal snake, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every other beast of the field. And so all the animals were cursed as a result, but the snake would be cursed more than all the animals. Animals were cursed. Why does your beloved pet die, suffer? Started here. Really. But the snake was cursed more than all the animals. And also part of the curse is on your belly. You will go from now on. You won't walk or ambulate and get around upright. You're going to be in, on your belly. In humiliation, dust you'll eat all the days of your life. Curse number one. Curse number two is on Satan himself because Satan who's an invisible demon, got inside of the snake and was able to talk to Eve, literally talk. That's supernatural. And convince Eve to sin. And plunge humanity into sin. And now God is going to curse Satan. So let's look at the curse on, on Satan in verse 15. Uh, this is God talking. God says, I will put enmity. And we talked a little bit about that word enmity, the New American Standard. You could uh, In there, it's a very specific Hebrew word. 
used in the book of Numbers and several other places, Ezekiel, I think, Old Testament word, enmity, that's kind of a strange word, just hatred. It's a strong word. It's an emphatic word. It's used in the context of war, fighting, killing, murder. So if you want to translate it as, I will put the uttermost unmitigated vicious hatred and murder and ongoing warfare. That's the living McManus translation that actually reflects what that Hebrew word means. This is vicious. And it's ongoing. It's continual. It's not a one-time reality. So God is really warning or saying from now on throughout the rest of human history until something else changes, this is going to be a reality. There is going to be utter vicious, warring hatred to the death between somebody, between two parties. Why is there war? Why is there Fighting in the world today, that's just a question that's plagued humanity all throughout history. Well, here's one of the main reasons and where it started. The question is, what parties are at war in an ongoing fashion to the utmost degree to the point of death? Well, the second part of verse 15, it's between you, Satan. We, it's the snake, but we can say Satan because we saw last week in John 8, Revelation 12, Revelation 20, where the New Testament reveals actually that it is Satan here. Jesus told us that. The serpent of old, he is called, who was in the garden, who was the deceiver, the liar, and the murderer from the beginning. And so God is literally talking to Satan and says, I'm going to put vicious, ongoing war and hatred between you, Satan, and between the woman, between Eve, Eve who, who was a real person. So there's your two parties that are going to have ongoing battle of war. So Eve and Satan. And between your seed and her seed. So not only going to be between you, Satan, and Eve, but it's going to be ongoing and perpetual all throughout history. It's going to be between your seed. The Hebrew word there for seed is descendant is what it means, offspring. So the offspring of you, Satan, are going to be continually at odds and at war with the offspring, the seed of Eve, between your seed and her seed. Her is Eve. So the offspring of Eve, the question is, who are the offspring of Satan? Who are the offspring of the woman Eve? Last week, we pointed out that the offspring, according to Jesus in John 8, of Satan, at a minimum, at least, are evil people. Those who reject God. That's just clear in, in Roman, uh, John chapter 8. Jesus told us that. So it's, it's people, human beings. It's not demons. Satan doesn't have babies. He never did. So it's, it's people. And the question is, who are the offspring? Who are the seed of Eve? And that's what we want to talk about today. Well, there's an indication Moses goes on. By the way, let's stop with the word seed. Remember what I said the number one rule of Bible interpretation is? Is translation, getting the translation right first. That's really important. Because in Genesis 3.15, if you look at all the English Bibles, there are different renditions of Genesis 3.15. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. The New American Standard here says, uh, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. He, capital H, a descendant of Eve, he shall bruise you on the head. So he, descendant of Eve, Satan is going to bruise your head. So he sounds like singular, masculine, a man. That's New American Standard. 
Well, the English translation of the Latin Vulgate, which was the authoritative Catholic version of the Bible that still exists today and is used, based on the Latin, says this in verse 15, and between your seed and her seed, she shall crush your head. She, from the Latin, that's a distortion of what the literal Hebrew says. Plain as day, it is singular, masculine in Hebrew. He shall bruise you on the head. No other way to be translated. And then it was distorted. Remember, Moses is writing this 1400 B.C., then about 400 A.D., so how many thousands of years later, it's tweaked to she. And then in 1854, the Pope of the Catholic Church used that translation, she shall crush your head, to say this is a reference to Mary and came up with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, that Mary was born without sin. That's where that came from. So that's why translation is so important. The Hebrew clearly says he. It is singular. It's masculine. It is a man. It is a man who will come from the loins of Eve. He shall bruise you on the head. And the New American Standard says he shall, and you, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. So here's the promise in the midst of this curse that Satan is going to be punished and God is going to use a human being to punish Satan. And to what degree is Satan going to be punished? He's going to be crushed. He is a snake. He's going to be crushed. He's going to, his head is going to be crushed. That is death. That's how you kill a snake. You crush its head, instant death. So whoever this man is yet to come, who's from the loins of Eve, a human being in history, is going to come and he's going to literally kill and destroy Satan and what he stands for. That is the theme for the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3.17. And you need to read the Bible accordingly. Whoever this man is, who is this expectant one? Who is the one that's going to come and crush and kill Satan? The one who helped plunge all of humanity into sin and to death and separation from God. Explaining how this world got messed up. So in the midst of a curse and bad news, God, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of salvation, not just the judge, gives hope to humanity right here. Here is his salvation plan. Here's his plan of redemption. From the very beginning of the Bible, when there's the first taint of sin god has a solution god was not caught by surprise regarding his plan he didn't panic this was planned god knew this in all eternity past fits perfectly into his plan and he's going to basically he's going to bring a redeemer a savior and little by little this is i'd say about 4000 bc according to genesis 5 and 10 and 11 luke chapter 3 we can conclude about how where in history this This event happened 4,000 B.C. when God is cursing Satan. And over the the next 4,000 years, actually from the time of Adam and Eve up to the New Testament, God is revealing little by little who this descendant of Eve is going to be. That Initially, the details are somewhat specific. That It's a man, singular, who comes from the loins of Eve. And then the rest of your Old Testament is going to give more details defining who this person is. That's called progressive revelation. Little by little, we're going to learn who this is. Then when the New Testament comes, it is overt, it is explicit, it is clearly defined. There is no question, there's no ambiguity as to who the seed of the woman is. His name is Jesus. We're going to find that out this morning. And as a Christian, because we are privileged with the New Testament and the full revelation of Jesus Christ and the apostles, we can read Genesis 3 with understanding. More explicitly, God said, I'm going to put enmity and hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and also between your descendants, evil people who reject God throughout history, and between her descendants, 
which could be plural or singular. And one of those descendants specifically is going to be Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Another thing about translation there, the word for bruise with respect to Jesus and Satan, it's the same Hebrew word for bruise, even though the NIV translated as crush and strike using two different English words. Bruise is an okay word, but it's not the best translation. The best translation literally is the, get this, is it the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which renders it perfectly. And here's their translation. He, the Messiah, shall strike you on the head. And you, Satan, shall strike him on the heel. It's the same Hebrew word, the same exact same verb. And when someone strikes a snake on the head, they are crushing it. And then a snake, many times, the only way it can uh, get it a human is striking its heel. And it's not always a death blow. And that's what's going on here. Satan strikes, or Jesus strikes a death blow by crushing Satan's head. Satan will be allowed to hurt the Messiah. He will be allowed to bite his heel. It will be temporary. It won't be fatal, permanently speaking. Satan will try to strike and kill the Messiah, not only when the Messiah appears on earth 4,000 years later, but all throughout history. Satan, who's supernatural, who's very wise, very powerful, he's trying to destroy God's plan to prevent the Messiah to come in the first place. All throughout history, we see this war between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve, which first starts with the Jewish line, or first the believing line, and then the Jewish line, and then believers. So seed here refers to people. Going back to Genesis 3.15, regarding the word seed there, your seed, the word seed in Hebrew is zera, Z-E-R-A. And it can mean five things depending upon the context. Uh, Genesis 1.11, same word Seed referred to seeds of plants. That's a literal seed. That's how plants can grow and regrow. It's the exact same word. Uh, in Genesis chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, seed, the exact same word, refers to a person, Seth, the seed of Eve. Singular man, Seth. Genesis 13, actually Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. The seed refers Zerah refers to the offspring of Abraham, which are the Jews. It refers to people. Genesis twenty-two eighteen, the word seed, Zerah, refers to an offspring of Abraham, singular, a person, a man, the Messiah. We know that from Paul in Galatians chapter 3 and 4, where he interprets Genesis twenty-two eighteen for us. And he specifically, Paul says, the word seed there can either be plural or singular. And I'm telling you through the Spirit of God that the seed, Zerah, in Genesis twenty-two eighteen in the promise to Abraham, refers to one man, and it is Jesus. He is the seed, ultimately, of the woman. So when you, and then also seed, we saw, can refer to offspring of Satan, unbelievers. They're still people, literal people. But it refers to their spiritual state, John 8. So when you read the word seed, you've got to read it in context. It could be singular, plural, and mean many different things depending upon the context. Kind of like the word in English, seed. It could be singular or plural. And also the word sheep, that sheep, those sheep, depending upon the context. And that's the same is true here. So God curses Satan 
But in, inherent in the curse on Satan is a blessed promise for all humanity that there is a, a plan and a path of salvation for all sinners. There is an answer to reverse this horrible curse that God puts on the earth. And someone specifically is going to come and implement this plan of salvation. Salvation for individuals to, to have their sin forgiven so that they can be saved from hell and God's wrath, but also a salvation plan where literally the Messiah is going to save this cursed earth. When we think of salvation, I think most of the time we just think of personal salvation. Jesus saved me. But it's more than that. The seed of the woman who we're going to find out is Jesus saves individual souls, but he also saves corporately people. He saves the nation of Israel. He saves the church, the body of Christ. He saves the world. He removes the curse. And he's going to usher in a new heavens and new earth as we go into eternity as well. That's what's being accomplished by this blessed coming great savior. So let's go ahead and look now at the outline that I put there. I've got 12 points here. And what this is, this is kind of a Bible study and overview of Genesis to Revelation where God, and I can give you a zillion more, but I just thought, let's just go with these because they're good. They're representative. They're very specific. And as the years go by century by century, prophet by prophet, God is kind of peeling away the curtain of obscurity and revealing more and more about who this ultimate seed of Eve is that will crush Satan's head. And by the time we go through these scriptures and get to the New Testament, it is patently obvious who we're talking about. So let's go ahead and look at it. Who is this seed of the woman? Well, point number one, we've already showed that the seed of Eve, the offspring of Eve, the descendant of Eve would be a male human. So you can't just spiritualize this away and say it doesn't refer to a specific person, which some people try to do and commentaries try to do. No, this is a specific person, a male, an offspring of Eve. By the way, I put Galatians 4, 4 there because the Apostle Paul, I believe, alludes to this, Genesis three fifteen, with respect to Jesus Christ, because he refers to Jesus as one born at the perfect time in history, born of a woman. That was profound, especially as a Jew for Paul. Born of a woman. Someone born of a woman. Right here, the seed of... I think this is the only time in the Bible where someone's seed is in reference to a woman, the seed of a woman. It's always the seed of a man. The seed of a man. The seed of a... Why is that so? Because even the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates Zerah seed as sperma. Sperm. Sperm. Seed. Women don't have seed. That's why this passage stands up. The, the seed of a woman. Wait, w- women don't have seeds. Could this be an allusion to the virgin birth? Absolutely. Because Mary became pregnant without the seed, the sperma, the zera of a male human being. How is that possible? That's impossible. The Holy Spirit of God, Luke one thirty-five, Matthew chapter 1, had to intervene. God himself had to create the seed and the baby inside Mary's womb, apart from a human seed. Miraculous, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ. The only way to get around this need of the seed being from a man. So the seed would be a male and he'd be human. And we were told this by God, or at least God revealed it to Adam, 4,000 B.C. And then in 1400 B.C., God had Moses write it down so that all of Israel could have it and that it could be passed on to the church. Clue number two, who is this seed of the woman? Number two, the seed would come from Abram. Go to Genesis 15. Now we're just going to fly through the Bible. Just a big picture overview. 
In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. Abram is a pagan. He's an idol worshiper. He's 75 years old. He's over from Iraq, over yonder, 500 miles away from Israel. And God invades his life, appears to him literally in a vision and dream and starts speaking audibly to him. Scared him practically to death. And God revealed that he was God, he was Elohim, that he was Yahweh, that he was also the almighty God, the great El Shaddai. And God called Abraham, and eventually God would save Abraham. And God makes this amazing promise first in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord God said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, abandon it all, and go to the land that I'm going to show you, the promised land that I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you some land. Did you know that he actually never technically possessed that land his whole life? But it was to be given to his descendants. And I will make you, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Who's that? Well, first it was the nation of Israel. And I will bless you, Abraham. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing, Abraham. And Abraham was a blessing. He still is to this day. Verse 3, Genesis 12. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who mocks you, I will curse. Those are two different verbs there in verse 3. The one who mocks you, who damns you, who treats you flippantly, disrespects you, I will curse, said God. That was a promise. And those are the descendants of Abraham, which would be the Jews. That was God's promise. They would be his special people all throughout the Old Testament. They were the first ones to get saved in the New Testament. The Jews were the ones that laid the foundation of the church. They were called the apostles. They were Jewish. The Savior was Jewish. His name is Jesus. This still holds true today. The greatest Jew there ever was was the Lord Jesus. And those who mock him, God curses. Those who bless him, God blesses. We only have life and forgiveness, joy in knowing Jesus Christ and blessing him. And and here's the promise to us. There's a promise to the Jews, but also to you and me if you're a Gentile, you're a non-Jew. The end of verse 3 in Genesis 12. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to bless the Gentiles as well, not just the Jews. And it would ultimately be through a descendant and offspring of Abraham a specific individual. It would be descendants, the Jews, but through the Jews would come the Messiah. Genesis thirteen fifteen. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you, Abraham, and to your descendants, and to your seed forever, forever. The land still belongs to Israel, and God will fulfill that totally yet in the future. The offspring. Then in Genesis twenty two eighteen, you don't need to look there, but when Abraham offered his son and he was going to kill him, he was about age 16 and he was going to sacrifice him on the altar. And God stopped him as his arm was ready to come down with a, a knife on Isaac and an angel of the Lord stopped him. And then God blessed Abraham and said, because you've been faithful, willing to love me more than you love your own son, I will bless you and I'm going to bless your loins. I'm going to bless and a seed will come from you. A descendant will come from you who will bless the world. That seed is Jesus the Messiah, according to Paul in Galatians 3. So this this seed of Eve in Genesis 3.15, he would be a male, he would be a human, an offspring of Eve. He would come from the loins of Abraham. And the Bible, especially Genesis, traces the genealogies. This is why genealogies in the Bible are so important. Typically a Christian, when they're reading their Bible or devotions and they get to a genealogy, uh, yawn, snooze, sleep. But when you're thinking of the promise, wait a minute, God said that A descendant will come directly from the lineage of Eve. Can we trace that from Jesus back to Adam? Very important. Otherwise, God 
doesn't keep his promises. So Genesis, at the end of chapter 4, the beginning of verse 5 in Genesis, says that Eve gave birth to a son. His name was Seth. Seth was a believer. Seth was the godly line that led to Jesus, the Messiah. And that's why Genesis 5 traces Seth's genealogy all the way down through several generations to Noah. And then later in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, Genesis, God traces Noah's genealogy down to Abraham. And then in the book of Chronicles, chapter 1 through 9, the word of God traces the genealogy of Abraham. Well, Genesis does it from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons. And then the promise is revealed to Judah, one of the 12 sons. And then Chronicles picks up with Judah and traces the genealogy of Judah all the way down to the time of the Chronicles. Showing us God has kept his promise. Here comes that seed. Here comes that offspring. Here comes the one who's going to crush Satan's head as the savior. So that takes us to point number three. The seed would come from Judah. Genesis 49 verse 10. We're not going to go there. Just a big overview. So you've got the seed coming through Abraham. Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is not the seed of promise, but Isaac is. So Genesis says, It's going to come through Isaac. The seed, the descendant will come through Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau is not the seed of promise. But Jacob is, even though he was kind of a knucklehead for 40 years. Can I say that? Knucklehead in church? Okay, he was a he was a compromiser, deceiver, sinner. And then God probably saved him when he was 40 years old and changed his name to Israel. The one who wrestles on God's team. And Jacob was now a believer. He wasn't perfect. He was sinful. But he's the line of promise. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And one of them is named Judah. Oh, man, he's he's a mess, too. But God says, you know what? I'm going to bless Judah. Judah is of the line of the Messiah. And that's Genesis 49. And from Judah's loins, imagine this. This is like 1800 B.C. Where God tells Jacob, from the loins of Judah, your son, the compromiser son, the immoral son, the adulterous son, the lying son, the incestuous son. Yeah, that guy, Judah. Yeah, the guy that tried to kill Joseph, his brother. Yeah, the murderer. I'm going to bless him. His 11 brothers will bow down to him. From his loins will come Shiloh, the one who reigns with a scepter. The king is coming from Judah. Amazing. This is the seed going through the lineage. Very specific. That's number three. The seed would come from Judah, the tribe of Judah. You would think in that story, well, he's got to come from Joseph. Joseph is such a good guy. No. Judah. Sinner. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God can save Judah. God can save any one of us. And that's the nature of the Messiah. Now, Revelation 5, 5 is explicit. It refers to Jesus Christ glorified in heaven in glory in his resurrected body. And it refers to him as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Jesus reigns as king right now in heaven. As the victorious lion from the tribe of Judah, fulfilling the prophecy of Genesis 49. Number four, the seed of the woman will come from Jesse, whoever this guy is. Isaiah 11.1. So Isaiah wrote in about 700 B.C. This is after the northern part of Israel just got decimated and destroyed by Assyria, the pagans. Part of Isaiah's job was to warn southern Israel that still kind of exists. Judah, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, temple area. 
Isaiah preached for like 50 years trying to warn them, repent, repent, turn back to God. They wouldn't listen for the most part. So Isaiah gives all the 66 chapters in our English Bible in Isaiah. It's amazing. And there are just so many uh, messianic prophecies regarding this coming Messiah. And some of them are explicit and very specific. And one of them is in Isaiah 11, 1, that the promise that this coming Messiah would be from the line of Jesse. The line of Jesse. Well, who was, so if you go to Luke chapter 3, let's go to Luke chapter 3, because this is uh, amazing. And you got, when you go to uh, the genealogies, I left off with, remember, uh, Judah and Chronicles. Well, what about the lineage from Judah down to Jesus? Is there a straight line? Can we actually track that? Do we know the names? Do we know the families involved? Yes, that's what Matthew chapter 1 does for us, and also Luke chapter 3. So look at Luke chapter 3. So there's two genealogies. They're complementary. One is a genealogy tracing Mary's descent. The other genealogy is tracing Matthew's descent. But just look at uh, Luke chapter 3, which is uh, emphasizing Joseph's lineage. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse uh 30, 23. Okay, so when Jesus began, yeah, Luke three twenty three. When Jesus began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old. He didn't do any miracles up until he was 30. Being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. So when Jesus is 30 years old, for the most part, everybody thinks that Joseph is the father of Jesus. But Luke knows, no, Joseph is not the blood literal father of Joseph. Joseph probably adopted Jesus because Jesus had no human father. He had only a human mother. And the Trinity, the Holy Spirit and the Father put a seed in Mary's womb. And that's Jesus came down from heaven and went into Mary's womb. Didn't need a human seed. He had no human father. It's a miracle. Virgin birth. Unbelievable. Never happened again. Never be replicated. So Luke is spot on here. Uh, he was supposedly the son of Joseph, but he wasn't. He was the adopted son of Joseph. And so this is Joseph's lineage. And it says, and Joseph was the son of Eli and uh, the son of Mal- Mathet, Levi, Melchi, Jani, Joseph. We don't know a lot about a lot of these guys. Verse 25, Mathathias, Amos, Nahum, Hesley, Nagai. Verse 26, the son of Matha, and he was the son of Mathathias, and the son of Semain, and the son of Josek, and the son of Joda, not Yoda, Joda. Verse 27, the son of jo- Joannan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi. Verse 28, the son of Adi, the son of Kazan, the son of Elmadon, the son of Ur. Verse 29, the son of Joshua, Eliezer, Joram, Mathet, Son of Levi. Oh, wait, verse uh, 29 and 30. Those are some familiar names. Son of Levi. <clears throat> son of Simeon. Son of Judah. Son of Joseph. Jonan. Elikim. Mela. Menon. Son of Matta. Son of Nathan. Son of David. Okay, Dave, verse 31. There's the first famous name. King David. Verse 31. Jesus was adopted by Joseph, so he was the legal son of Joseph. Joseph was a direct descendant of King David. There it is in verse 31. David had a lot of sons because he had a lot of wives. That was bad. David was a sinner. He was pathetic. He was an adulterer. He was 
a murderer. He was a man of blood. That's why God wouldn't let him build the temple. He had blood on his hands. But God saved him. He loved God. He was a humble sinner. He begged for God's forgiveness. He worshiped God. He was blessed by God in many ways. But he suffered the consequences of sin in his life. He had many sons, but two of his significant sons were Nathan and Solomon. Joseph, father of Jesus by adoption, came from the loins of Nathan, son of David. Mary, Matthew 1, came from King David through Solomon. So that's one of the most important distinctions in these two genealogies. It goes to David, and then David splits off two ways, to Nathan and to Solomon, where we get to Mary and Joseph. So that's amazing. Jesus' parents... His physical mother and his adopted father both came directly from the loins of David. And you know what? God made a promise to King David in 1000 BC. Not only are you king, but the greatest king of all time will come through your loins. And your his kingdom will reign forever. The Jews knew this. They had their genealogies intact. They knew who King David was. They knew the promise that was made to David. The Jews in Jesus' day were scholars in the Old Testament. They knew it inside and out. They should have been looking. They should have been aware. People called Jesus son of David all the time. Even unbelievers called Jesus son of David. Demon-possessed people called Jesus son of David. Demons called Jesus son of David. That was saying something. Hosanna, son of David. That means Hosanna, the right to be king. The coming Messiah, right in front of their eyes. So that's why these genealogies are so important. Uh, Son of David, son of Jesse. There's Jesse, verse 32. Who was Jesse? Jesse was the father of David. David had, what, seven, eight sons? David was like the youngest. God bypasses all the stronger ones, the greater ones, goes to the weakest one. That's God. Continually in his election, choosing the weak, choosing the helpless, choosing the sinner, choosing the one that can't help himself. It's the grace of God. It's how he operates. Son of Jesse. Uh, Verse 32, Obed-Boaz married Ruth. Shouldn't have married Ruth because she was a Moabitess. The law of Moses said that they were to have nothing to do with the people of Moab. People of Moab were to be shunned, if not killed. And yet, God saves a Moabitess. Her name is Ruth. Boaz marries him. She's in the genealogy of the Messiah. Just grace is all over the place. Salmon, Nashon, uh, Abinadab, Admon, Ram, Hezron. Then, starting at verse 33, Hezron, he's mentioned in Genesis. Son of Perez, he's mentioned in Genesis. Judah, Genesis. Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Terah, Nahor, verse 35, Sarag, Ruth. Have you ever had so much fun in a genealogy before? Anyway, I'm going to keep going. Sarag, Ru, Peleg, the day when the earth was divided. Could have been a worldwide massive earthquake when the continental uh, plates all separated. Something amazing, devastating, worldwide happened in the days of Peleg. Heber, the father of the Hebrews. Shelah, verse 36. Canaan, Arpaxid, Shem, Shem, as in Shemite, Semite. That's where the Jews specifically come from. That's their bloodline. Son of Noah, Lamech, Methuselah, the guy that lived the longest on the earth. Son of Enoch, the guy that never died, just went straight to heaven. Jared, Mahaliel, Canaan, Enosh, Seth, son of Eve, 
the son of Adam, the son of God. There it is. Jesus, verse 23, is the son of God through Adam, the seed of the woman. And it goes through all these people, and you see Jesse on the list. The Jews should have been able to identify that. Number five, Jesus, the seed of the woman, he was, the seed would come from King David. We already saw that. Second Samuel 7, 12, a thousand years before Christ, just before David's death, when God was breaking the news to David saying, I know, David, you want to build my temple? You want to build my house? You spent 15 years on your palace and a lot of money. And I do. I want a house. I want a permanent temple. Tired of living in this tent. But you, you can't build it. You're, you're a man of war. You've got blood all over your hands. So I'm going to let your son build it, Solomon. So that was probably heartbreaking for David. But with that, God gave David a promise. But nevertheless, you're king. You're a great king. You're a blessed king. Your son Solomon will be king. Not only that, Solomon and your descendants will be kings forever. As a matter of fact, the greatest king of all will come from your loins from Solomon. That's the promise of the coming king, the Messiah. By the way, the word Messiah means the anointed one, the anointed king, Mashiach in Hebrew. The anointed, that's what that word means, Christ. Christ, Messiah, anointed one, the anointed king, the king of kings. Would come from the loins of David. That's Second Samuel seven twelve. Now that we've looked at the exciting genealogy of Luke 3, go to Matthew chapter 1 and let's look at this exciting genealogy. Remember all these Old Testament promises. God is revealing little by little. Uh, the, the savior of the world will be the descendant of Eve. He'll be a male. He'll be a human. And then just little by little. God's revealing he's going to come from Abraham. He's going to come from the Jews. He's going to come from Judah, specifically of the Jews. He's going to come from, through this man named Jesse. And one of Jesse's youngest sons will come through David, Matthew chapter 1. So the Messiah, the Old Testament promised, would be an offspring and a direct descendant of Abraham, the greatest Jew, the first Jew. And also he would be a descendant of the greatest king of Israel, which is David. That will be the Messiah. Look for that one. And so here's Matthew, the first book in the New Testament written. Written by a Jew, Matthew, one of the apostles. Written to Jews. Remember we saw in the book of Acts that for the first five to seven years, the only people getting saved were Jews. Until Cornelius came along. So in 45 AD, whatever it was, Matthew writes this book. It's to a Jewish audience. This is profound for them. The record of the genealogy. Here's the offspring. Here's the lineage of Jesus. This is so important for Jews at the time. Temple hadn't been destroyed. They had all the records. You knew where you came from 1,500 years ago to 2,000 years ago if you were a Jew in that day. That was important to you. If I were to come around and ask you, um, who was your descendant of 1,500 years ago? I don't think you could answer that. I can't answer it. Well, let's see. I don't even know my great-grandma. The Jews could do this. They had it in writing. And here's the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David, the seed of David, the offspring of King David, the greatest king. Not only that, the offspring, the son of Abraham. That's just amazing. That's powerful. And then look at the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of Judah, the father, verse three, Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar, another adulterous woman in the genealogy of Jesus. A bunch of sinners in the genealogy of Jesus. The sinless Savior in the genealogy. Why? Because the Savior came to identify with sinners. Came to save sinners. And there's, they're pretty bad. 
Ram, verse 4, uh, verse 5, Rahab, there's another adulteress, prostitute. Bible calls her a prostitute. Rahab, Ruth, the Moabitess, she was evil. She got saved. Verse 6, oh, wait, through Solomon, he was pretty bad. What, like 11, 1,000 women in his life? And then Bathsheba, his mom, the adulteress? Through Solomon, Rehoboam, goes through the list. Isaiah, Hezekiah, verse 10. Manasseh, he was terrible. 11, Josiah, verse 12. Jeconiah, he was terrible. He was cursed by God. 13, Zerubbabel. 14, 15, 16, Jacob, the deceiver. That's what his name means, Jacob, the deceiver. Oh, that's a different Jacob. But anyway, that's what the word means. Verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. So this is the genealogy leading back from Jesus' family, Mary, all the way back to Abraham, the greatest Jew, and through David, the greatest king. The seed would come from David. So as you see, as the years go by, God is revealing very specifically who this Messiah will be. He'll be a male human from the loins of Eve, from Abraham, through Judah, through Jesse, through David, and then specific things about him. Uh, Number six, the seed would be born of a virgin. We already referred to this of a virgin uh, isaiah seven fourteen and 700 years before christ was born isaiah predicted that uh, a virgin the hebrew word a virgin shall be with child a virgin will be pregnant that's impossible isaiah predicted that isaiah seven fourteen seven hundred 700 years before jesus was born a virgin will be pregnant and will give birth to a son and his name shall be called emmanuel god with us and then matthew tells us that Jesus' supernatural birth fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. Again, it's possible that this was alluded to in Genesis 3.15, the seed of a woman, the seed of a woman. No sperma, no zera, no seed of a human man. God had to do a miracle in order for this to happen, and he did. Jesus was born of a virgin. What else about this coming Messiah? Uh, Number seven, the seed would be deity. God in human flesh. This is the most highly offensive thing to unbelieving Jews. This is blasphemy in their mind. God is a spirit. God is not a man. God does not have a body. God's name. You shouldn't even say God's name. That's why the Jews wouldn't say Yahweh. And yet in their own Bible, Isaiah 9, 6 predicted that the Messiah to come would be divine. Not only divine would be deity. That means God. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Just that Hebrew word alone, Wonderful. In the Old Testament, always refers to to God incarnate somehow. Wonderful, the inexplicable one, the one beyond comprehension. That's what the word Wonderful in Hebrew means. He will be beyond comprehension, the Wonderful One. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. Mighty God. There it is. Isaiah 9, 6. The Messiah who will be born will be called Mighty God. He's wonderful and beyond comprehension. God will take on a human body. Isaiah 9, 6. They should have known this. And that's what Jesus preached at age 30. He began for three and a half years preaching that he came down from heaven. He is the bread from heaven. He and the Father are one. He's lived with the Father for all eternity. He represents the Father perfectly. 
he and the Father are one. He is God himself. He referred to himself as the great I am. I am, I am, I am over and over again, which is right out of Exodus 3.14 when God told Moses his name. Moses says, God, what is your name? And he says, I am. Jesus comes down and says, I am. John chapter 8, John chapter 10, it infuriated them. They picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because Jesus called himself, being a man, called himself God. And that's why his closest apostle, John the Apostle, in his old age, in 90 AD, begins to write his gospel. And the first sentence in his gospel in John 1, 1 is, in the beginning was the word. And, the, and that the word is Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God himself. Jesus is God. He is God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. One God, triune persons. So the, the, the offspring of Eve will be deity. He has to be deity. He has to be more than a man to crush Satan. Satan is supernatural. Satan is invisible. Satan is powerful. Only God can deal with Satan. So the Messiah had to be 100% human to identify with sinners, but 100% God to deal with sin and Satan himself. Hebrews 2 says that's why Jesus came, to deal with Satan and his greatest weapon, death. So the seed, this person would be deity himself. God, that's what Emmanuel means. His name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us, God dwelling in our presence. Number eight, the seed would be born in Bethlehem. So again, getting very specific. Micah 5, 2, 700 B.C., uh, Micah predicted this great prophet down in Judah that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem of Ephrathah. I think it's interesting that he got really specific. Bethlehem of Ephrathah because there were two Bethlehems, one by Galilee and one down by six miles north, uh, south of Jerusalem. And when it came time for Mary to give birth, she came down from Nazareth or Galilee and or she was, uh, gave birth to her son in Bethlehem. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. King David was born in, in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Beit Lehem bread, the house of bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Where he was born was the city of the bread of life, where King David was born. Fulfills that prophecy. Uh, number nine, the Old Testament predicted this, the uh, seed of the woman would be crucified. Psalm 22, verse 16, a thousand years before Christ died, David wrote that psalm, and in it, it's chronological. And it portrays and pictures vividly the crucifixion of the Messiah a thousand years before it ever happened. The culmination is 22, verse 16, where it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 22 is quoted repeatedly in the four Gospels at the time of Christ's death. So the Messiah would be crucified. So the biggest stumbling block to unbelieving Jews was that this so-called Messiah would be God in a body and also that he would die. They didn't want a Messiah that would die. That's why they rejected Christ, the ones that didn't believe. Yet it was in their, their own Bible, number 10. Predicted 700 years before Christ that the seed would die for sinners. Isaiah 53, read that whole chapter. That's a prediction 700 years before Christ's death, that the Messiah would be killed. He would be killed by God, the Father, that's what it says, and killed as a substitute of, for sin. Isaiah 53 is the theology of Jesus' death. And Psalm 22 is the chronology of Jesus' death. Perfect compliment. Hundreds of years before it happened. Number 10, the seed would die for sinners. Uh, yeah, that was Isaiah, his death. Number 11, the seed would rise again. Psalm 16, written by David a thousand years before 
He predicted that the Messiah would rise again from the dead. And the New Testament uh, quotes that verse a couple of times. Messiah will die. He'll rise again. And then number 12, the seed will reign on the earth. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel had a, a vision that the Messiah would come at the end of the age. And he would literally rule on earth. That hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen in the future. Literally, Jesus is going to come at the second time. And he is going to land in Jerusalem. And he will take up residence there and he will be the king of kings for 1000 years literally on this earth so there won't be elections for a thousand years at least because he will reign supremely as king that's in the future if you're a christian today the bible promises you that if you believe in jesus christ and all that we've said about him that he's the only savior that he died on the cross as a substitute for your sins if you believe he rose again from the dead and ascended on high and you have claimed him as your savior not only are you forgiven of your sin in this life instantaneously, adopted into the family of God right now, but your future is secure forever with him, beginning when he returns again and you get to reign with him for a thousand years on the earth in glory with Christ and the angels. Amen. That's a good thing to go to lunch on. Closing with Jesus is the promised Savior. Let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father. Father, we thank you for this day and another Christmas message that you hid away in Genesis chapter 3 for us to encourage us in the midst of sin and the curse and damnation and you give us great and blessed hope and it's a reality by virtue of the gospel and knowing Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for that blessed truth. We give you all the glory for it. We commit this day and our week to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.